The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week as I knock over the microphone with my hands. Oh, my goodness. We have ourselves quite a little program today, viewers and listeners. I am so, so excited for this one. It is episode 399, which means that amazing break the business milestone of episode 400 is within our grasp we can touch it we can taste it it is so close to us but we need not get there too early we can enjoy the episode 399 as well because there's a lot to enjoy about episode 399 first among the reasons why we love this week's episode let's bring out our co-host she always makes us happy katie zaccardi's here hi katie Hello! <laughs> oh, it is so, so wonderful to see you. I, I'm ear-to-ear -ear grin whenever you are joining us. We got lots of great stuff to talk about. How have you been? I've been good. I'm, like, settling into spooky season, loving the fall Halloween vibes. I just watched Practical Magic for the first time. So, you know, things are good. How would it... Okay, how does that happen? Because really look, question. I I gotta tell you, like given given your generation, like just given your overall vibe, mm -hmm. you seem like somebody who should have watched Practical Magic at least a dozen times by now. How did this movie escape you of all people for so long? And Ryan, you are precisely right. Like, I don't know how I've been seeing this movie, and now I'm gonna watch it every week. You know what I mean? But I don't really actually know. I think that it just came out at a time, like I was really, really young when it came out, and then it just never, nobody ever showed it to me. Like, I guess like my mom never watched it or my friends never watched it, and I just, it got away from me. And I like knew it was one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, I've never seen it, I'll have to watch it. And I finally sat down and I did. And I talked to one of my friends before and she was like, oh yeah, great movie. But I didn't know where it was going for a dang second. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. This might be indicative of like the, if you want to find a way to distinguish between elder millennial versus younger millennial slash yeah. elder Gen Z, yeah. I think this is the line of demarcation. Have you seen Practical Magic a dozen times? Yeah. And if you haven't, then you you skew a little younger on the millennial Gen Z spectrum. If you're like me or Elisa Rock Doc, that movie was our whole personality. Right. Out of curiosity on the Halloween front, uh, what's your Halloween costume going to be? Do we have this nailed down yet? I'm so glad you asked. So I actually was going to do musical icon Stevie Nicks. However... I decided against it, which is good because some of my friends are going as Daisy Jones in the six, which would be like too close. But I believe that I will be going as Fran Fine from the nanny, which is a very interesting. We're talking about what generation are you? And like, I think like kind of early for me too, 
but I did watch it and I've been rewatching it. So I'm like very inspired right now by her. I mean, you're absolutely right about that. Cause the kind of people that make practical magic, the movie, their personality are also the same people that make the nanny, the 90s yeah. sitcom, their personality. So you yeah. you'd think those would line up. I mean, how are you doing the nanny? Are you, are you, are you dyeing your hair uh, a darker um, brunette color? No. So I, I mean, my hair has gone kind of dark, but basically what I'm going to do, I'm going to like, it's pretty dark on the bottom. So we're going to go full poof, like curls and then just tease it up the wazoo get that friend fine poof going and then i'm gonna wear like classic 90s like super printed skirt because she always just had such good fashion yeah. with like a tur with a turtleneck and like a little vest over it and some tights so magnificent it, yeah we're going we're going full 90s and i feel like it's all in the hair i know my hair is not as dark as hers but i think as long as i tease it extremely high it will be believable I think the high altitude of the hair will overcome that your hair is not quite as dark as one Fran Drescher, yeah. um, acclaimed uh, actress and also hero of organized labor. Uh, I Fran know. Drescher. She, she like really is the star of 2023. So I'm like, I must honor her. You yeah, know what who, I mean? Who, who saw that coming, by the way? Okay. Well, Truly. speaking of heroes of labor, the guest we have this week, Katie, Quite a poll, I should say. We are joined later in the show by U.S. Representative Deborah Ross, a representative from North Carolina's 2nd Congressional District. And the reason why we're having her on, for, for those who've been catching the show the last few weeks, they know we've been talking incessantly about the Protect Working Musicians Act. This is a bill that's been submitted to Congress that would basically empower independent creators and allow them to make more money when their music is played on uh, music platforms such as Spotify or Apple Music or something like that. And so I figure we talked about this plat. We've talked about this legislation enough. Why don't we get the person who wrote the dang thing to come on the show and tell us about it? And so we're going to be joined by Representative Deborah Ross, the author of the Protect Working Musicians Act. And, uh, you know, she's going to tell us all about it. And for those of you keeping score at home, that is our second member of the United States House of Representatives to join us on Break the Business. We are pretty dang pleased about that. Here's the only thing I messed up on, Katie. Um, what? So... I, I don't normally I'm reluctant to reveal this, but I think I have to for this because of, of something that happened. Uh, this is a pre-recorded interview. Uh, we are we didn't get the congresswoman live. As you can imagine, she's a very busy person. So we pre-recorded this one and we probably could have gotten away with it and tricked everybody into thinking it was live, except during the interview, which we recorded a couple days ago. I made a joke about how there wasn't a speaker of the House yet. Oh, and and for and as we record this on Wednesday night, October 25th, they finally elected a speaker of the house not a few hours ago. And so now you can all listen to my speaker of the house joke, which will sound really dumb and a little late. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just a, a fun little Easter egg for the viewers and listeners uh, oh, man, for, you in that just, regard. You could have just acted like you didn't watch the news yet because I didn't. <laughs> Well, is that how you're getting your political news from being on Break the Business right now? Yeah, this is a, this is how I get all of my really important news about yeah. the government. Um, I imagine that's how it is for most people. This is where yeah. you turn to for your political news um, is Rose Ryan and Katie. Now, I, <laughs> I mean, don't ask me the name of the Speaker of the House. I already forgot it, but <laughs> I know we have one. 
But that's not the legislator I want to talk to. The legislator I want to talk to is Representative Deborah Ross, um, and also join who, who we're going to be hearing from. And also joining us in that interview is Elisa Rockdock, who helped me interview the Congresswoman. So a uh, lot to look forward to a little bit later in the show. But before we even get there, I have a lot of things to talk to you about, Katie Sicardi. Uh, first of which is a, a riddle of sorts. Okay. Okay. Um, interesting article in Billboard that came out recently. And to introduce it, I want to ask you the following. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give you three major hit songs. Okay. That, you know, generation defining songs, you know, three of the biggest songs of, of recent eras. Okay. Isn't she lovely by Stevie wonder American girl by Tom Petty and the heartbreakers Mm -hmm. into the groove by Madonna. And I'll add one more even there for you. Diamonds in the soles of her shoes by Paul Simon, big, big generational hits. Uh, what do you think they all have in common? What was the second one again? Uh, American Girl, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Oh, man. Can you give me a hint? Is it lyrical? Uh, You'll never get it. it. Uh, This is me totally hanging out to you drive. Like the the whole conceit. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to be like the same songwriter, the same mixing engineer. <laughs> yes, I actually wrote all four of these songs. That's the, <laughs> yeah, you wish. That's why, That's why you know, I still practice law right now and host this entertainment <laughs> show instead of living on a private island somewhere. Yeah, you're so rich, you have to fulfill your, your life purpose somehow. So you might that's right. No. What, what all four of these songs have in common is something that you might not expect, Katie. All four of these songs never reached the Billboard Hot 100. Ooh, okay. I mean, these are all songs that by any objective measure, you stop any music fan on the street anywhere, they're going to say, oh yeah, those songs are massive hits. Every one of them probably made the top 10. A couple of those probably went to number one, right? Uh Wrong. Every single one of those songs and 96 other huge hits Never made the Billboard Hot 100. And so Billboard put out a a list recently of the top 100 songs of all time, never to reach the Billboard Hot 100. Now, the reason why I was interested in this story is not because of the songs that made the list, although some of them will really make you scratch your head. Like, how how on earth did Into the Groove by Madonna not at least get to, like, the top 10 or something? But what I find fascinating about the article and what I think makes it interesting for this program is to find out the reason why. The song never made the Hot 100. And the article does a good job of listing each song and giving you a reason why the song, despite being a significant song in pop culture, never became a hit. And all of the reasons uh, come down to one thing. Dumb record labels. (laughs) Did they not like submit them or something? I mean, it's almost like that. Really what it is, is a lot of the songs that didn't make the Hot 100 uh, were because of an antiquated model in music, you know, l- backed by the labels of the time that uh, basically, you know, made the music business undemocratic, didn't allow, you know, made it where songs that should have been big hits, if music fans got a say, uh, never got to be big hits because labels acted as a gatekeeper to making these songs a big hit. And, you know, say what you will about all the negative aspects of the music industry today. But one of the things that I think the music industry does better now than it did 
generations ago is that when a song is good, it has a better chance of finding its audience and becoming a hit, even if the label doesn't believe in it eventually. We see this on TikTok yeah. where TikTokers yeah. will find a song. It might be like the 11th song on Doja Cat's album or something, mm -hmm. and they'll get a hold of it because they'll be like, this thing's kind of a jam. I don't know why the labels aren't promoting it on radio, and yeah. they'll make it into a hit. And so yeah. good songs have the more of an opportunity than ever to become a hit, even if labels don't see it. But it, that yeah, it just yeah. happened with Cruel Summer, where that was on Taylor Swift's Lover album years ago. That's and then a Cruel great Summer example. Went viral, and then she released it as a single this year because it like blew up so much from the fans. That is a spectacular example. Yes, Cruel Summer is like the most. You know, if Cruel Summer, if Taylor Swift was a big time artist in the 1980s, Cruel Summer's never becoming a hit because yeah. of the the same reason that for example into the groove never became a hit or isn't she lovely didn't become a hit i'll give you an example right so into the groove any madonna fan will tell you that's like one of their favorite songs how did it not become a hit because when into the groove came out that was back in the time of like physical vinyl records where you had the a side and the b side right and the a side was like this is the rec you know two sides to the music only two tracks on the record and so the A-side, that's the one that the label's promoting the heck out of, right? That's the one that's getting onto the radio and we're going to promote it. The B-side, uh, you know, just an extra song because, hey, the record has two sides, so we're going to put some on the other side. Mm -hmm. And Into the Groove was a B-side, despite the fact that it's a really popular Madonna song. Mm -hmm. and, and so that was just the limitations of that era, right? There wasn't digital music. There were only two sides to a physical record, and that's how music got into the world. And because the labels made the bad decision of making that song a B-side, not an A-side, it never made the Hot 100, even though it had every right to. The Stevie Wonder one is, is an even more wild example. So in the case of Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder, which again, you stop any music fan on the street, they're going to say, oh yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite songs of that era. It's certainly one of the best works that Stevie Wonder ever put out. Um, why did this song not make even the top 100 of Billboard? Because of radio. The original version that came out of that song was over six minutes long, and it had a, it even had like a little audio snippet in it of Stevie Wonder talking to his baby, right? Because the song's all about a new baby being brought into the world, and Stevie mm -hmm. Wonder thought that would be a cool thing to add in there. And I think we all think that's adorable, but if you're radio, and you're trying to play something that's only three minutes, you're getting a six-minute yeah. song with a baby talking in it, and you're like, what do I do with this? Mm -hmm. And so the song didn't get heavy rotation in radio, and so it never became a hit, despite being a wonderful, wonderful song. Now, if that song came out today in the era of TikTok, it could become a hit, regardless of length, because the TikTokers would find a nice 15-second snippet of that song that was particularly compelling, make a bunch of TikTok videos out of it, and that song becomes a hit even if it doesn't get any radio play, as many Hot 100 hits have had recently, where they've gone to the top of the charts and haven't gotten a speck of radio. Yeah, that's pretty wild. But it also makes sense, because I kind of think that the Billboard... I feel like the Billboard Hot 100 chart has been kind of useless, dare I say, for a while now. So I'm like almost not surprised to see that this to even before streaming was the case. Um, but I'm 
I didn't think of all of those things. Like I wouldn't have thought that the, even the vinyl, like A side, B side would make such a huge difference, but that makes a lot of sense. And it's fascinating to see patterns kind of repeating themselves, but in this new digital age, like same things are happening just in different ways. Yep. And part of the, and part of the reason why we're in this kind of more democratized space when it comes to determining music on the charts is the Hot 100 has had to adapt technologically. So mm-hmm. back in the 90s, you know, the, the, I mean, the way the Hot 100 ranks its artists is it's, it's a formula. And they, they take in different metrics. And depending on you know how those metrics turn out in the formula, that's how they rank the songs. And back like in the 90s, as, as recently as the late 20th century, early 21st century, the only two metrics that really mattered for the Billboard charts were sales and radio. That was it. Those were the only two things they looked at. Um, they didn't look at, uh, you know, YouTube as YouTube was starting to rise up. They, you know, there was no TikTok yet. And so we wound up, I think this was in like, when did, when did, I think the song happened in like 2010 or so. So around 2010, uh, the song Gangnam Style by Psy came out, um, which was a massive, spectacular hit on YouTube. I think it was the first ever YouTube video to get over a billion views Wow. And so when that song came out, it, it took over the industry. You couldn't go anywhere without you know hearing that song, but it never got to number one on the chart. It only got as high as number two, even though it was definitely the biggest hit of its time, because at the time, YouTube views, even though it was the principal way most people were consuming music in 2010, were not part of the formula for determining yeah. Hot 100 hits. And so Billboard realized, oh, that's stupid. We got to fix that. And so then they started adding in YouTube views to determine Hot 100 hits. And then they started using today TikTok streams and, and uh, you know Facebook mm-hmm. streams and things like that. And so as technology has evolved, we're now seeing a place where uh, hit making is more democratized. It's not just determined by record labels and which side of the record they put the song on. And it's not determined just by traditional terrestrial radio where some programming director decides which song is going to get played and which one's not, you know, who's choosing now more than ever music fans. And so say what you will about everything going on in the industry right now. And there's certainly lots of negative things to pick at. This is one thing that I think to be a positive development because more than ever, I think we're going to have fewer and fewer instances of a song, like whatever the 2023 equivalent of isn't she lovely or into the groove that song won't get ignored as easily and it's more likely to become a hit because music fans are the ones making that choice more than ever. What a nice takeaway from this story. And you're so right. I'm really glad that they are updating it because technology and the music industry, I think moves so quickly. And I do feel like for a while there, it was sort of becoming obviously like when everything was based off of radio or record sales and we're all streaming music. Well, how is that an accurate depiction of what's going on? Like it's not necessarily. And I think now you also have a lot of indie artists who will blow up on TikTok and their stuff will take off and they might not have had access to radio play or anything like that originally, but yet it is this viral sensation that deserves recognition. So I feel like the way it is now will give them the opportunity to actually be recognized. Well, 
it is a welcome development, and I feel like we so rarely get to bring welcome developments to the viewers and listeners. Let's go ahead True. and bring, let's go back to our regularly scheduled programming of talking about crappy things about the industry. <laughs> um, I'd like to reintroduce the viewers and listeners to our, uh, our, our Break the Business intern, uh, who himself is quite a little expert on all things going on in the industry, Graham Pierce. Uh, Graham, are you there? You want to uh, pop in here for us? How are you? We should probably unmute him. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Forgot about that part. Uh, Thanks uh, for having a, me. A guys. great start. A great debut, Graham Pierce. <laughs> so you were telling me, Graham, about, uh, you know, since we go, want to go right back to the depressing music industry to stories, you were telling me about uh, Spotify being back on its nonsense again. They're, they've changed up their royalty payout model. You want to talk to us about this a little bit? Uh, yeah, so I saw uh, in the news this week that Spotify is updating their royalty payment payment uh, system, and they're they're keeping with the pro rata model that they're using, but uh, they're trying to trying to figure out uh, how to get some of the money back that's being lost due to due to fraud streams and uh, and uh, and and some other things, but but some of the things they're doing is they're introducing a uh, threshold of minimum annual streams that artists must receive in order to get uh, royalties paid to them, which is probably the most interesting thing on on the list. Uh, other than that, is uh, financially penalizing distributors and labels uh, for fraudulent streams, um, and then the other thing is. Uh, what they're doing with things like white noise uh, and nature sounds that people tend to stream for relax relaxation and sleep. Um, they're doing something where they're introducing a minimum uh, play time. Uh, so say like you're, you're trying to generate royalties uh, basically fraudulently by doing 31 second, uh, 31 second plays of white noise each time. Each time uh, a stream goes over 30 seconds, that, sh that stream uh, or that artist earns a royalty on that play. So they're, they're trying to get away with some of that fraudulent activity um, and bring some more money to artists. But I think, I don't know, Ryan, I think there's some things to be debated on this because a lot of, a lot of people in the industry have been trying to move more towards an artist-centric model, and uh, Spotify is kind of sticking with their pro rata model, which is kind of up for debate. So, Katie and Graham, I've heard this expression all over the internet lately. It goes along somewhere along the lines of, like, men would rather do blank instead of going to therapy. <laughs> right? Like, and, and then you just throw some <laughs> random thing in there, Right. Like men would rather argue on the internet instead of going to therapy. Um, to me, this is Spotify would rather do so many different payment models to try to fix a problem than to just do user centric royalties. You know, they seem to be willing to try every single method to try to combat fraud, to try to uh, improve payouts for musicians. When, the solution, as far as I'm concerned, as I've been crowing about for years, is right in their face, which is user-centric royalty. So let's let me catch up people on on kind of the situation with Spotify payouts if you're new to our proceedings. All right. 
a a very simplified explanation of the way Spotify pays its artists is we all have our Spotify subscriptions that I think are $9.99, but I think they just raised the prices on it. And Ryan pays his subscription. Graham Hayes pays his subscription. Katie pays her subscription. And they're going to take all of our subscriptions of all of us and all the other Spotify people and put it into a giant pot. And then Spotify is going to take out its percentage, you know, 30% or whatever to kind of fund Spotify. And then whatever is left in the whole pot is split amongst artists based on how much your music is listened to. So if your music is 1% of all the music that's listened on Spotify, you get 1% of the total royalty pool. And, you know, that's how it works. The problem with a model like that is, you know, several. One, it gives Spotify way too much power in dictating who makes money on the platform because they can just create playlists that funnel more plays to, say, label artists that, you know, have are in a close relationship with Spotify. And so that that takes money out of artists' pockets. Plus, it also means that individual subscribers are subsidizing the uh, other people's music, right? So if I am paying my $10 for Spotify and I do nothing but listen to Katie Zaccardi's albums on Spotify. As you should. As we should. <laughs> and what I also, what, what should also happen is that Katie should get my whole $10 because I've done nothing but listen to her music. But instead, she gets a tiny fraction of a cent of my $10 and the rest of my $10 goes to subsidize all of the Spotify plays of some damn yoga studio somewhere that's doing nothing but just playing the you know top 40 radio playlist on Spotify on repeat thousands of times. And so all those artists get paid. And so that's one problem that Spotify's model doesn't help with. Another problem that Spotify's model is creating is this is, is, is fraud, right? People are creating fraudulent streams or they're creating like white noise uh, songs and other kinds of things that are not really artistic achievements, but they're just ways to crank up the stream counts so that money can get funneled to them and away from actual artists making actual music. How do we solve all of these problems? User-centric royalties. Instead of creating one giant pot for all the royalties to be divided in, we treat every single subscriber on Spotify as its own pot. If, you know, if I do nothing on Spotify but listen to one artist's music, that artist should get all of my $10. If I split my time between two artists, I listen half to Katie Zaccardi's music and half to Graham Pierce's music, you should each get half of my royalties. That reduces, and so not only is that more fair to Graham and Katie as artists, but it also reduces fraud because now you don't have a fraud artist that is just cranking up the stream count and getting money from every user. They only get these royalties from that one particular user that's, you know, goosing up the fraud streams. So Spotify can fix all of these problems with user-centric royalties, but instead they come up with this really convoluted model that includes saying that if you don't get a certain threshold of streams as an artist, you get nothing from Spotify. So you're giving music to Spotify. People are playing that music on Spotify. And you don't. Hit, if you don't hit a threshold, you get zero from Spotify. That's yeah. kind of crap. <laughs> but Ryan, how do you propose that Spotify, the company, would make money then if all of our money as users is going directly to artists? Just oh. from like ads? 
Well, Spotify can still take its 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 uh its thing, right? Like so okay. in in the big royalty pot, Spotify's probably taken like 30% for itself. They can okay. still take their 30% from every single user before okay. the user centric user centric royalties are paid out to everybody. But the point is if you treat each user as its own royalty pot instead of one big royalty pot, you can compensate artists more fairly. You can prevent uh, subsidizing top 40 artists through playlists and you can reduce fraud on the platform. And and I'm not the only one crowing about this, by the way, there are lots of tech platforms and record labels who are saying, why aren't we doing user centric royalties yet? I didn't make this up. I'm not nearly that smart. I'm only parroting what smart people are already saying we should do, but yet uh, Spotify, Apple music, these platforms are not getting on board. I, am I missing anything, Graham? Like what's the other side of this? Well, I think Universal and SoundCloud, maybe Deezer recently, have uh, kind of adopted the user-centric model, or at least they're they're trying to in the near future. Um, but that's what that's what I've been hearing, and that's hopefully a step in the right direction. Yeah, we have started yeah. to see some platforms that um, are embracing this model, but I mean, those are drops in the bucket, right? I mean, without yeah. looking it up, I would say probably 80 to 90% of all the music streamed in the United States is either coming from Spotify or Apple music. So when SoundCloud says, you know, we're changing our model or Deezer says we're changing our model. That's nice. I mean, I'm not, I'm not discounting it, yeah. but that's not the platform where most artists are getting paid from. And so um, if we want to see real change in this industry and one where artists can actually get paid and see real money, we need to get one of these big hitters to change this policy. But I'm not optimistic about Spotify doing this because I think that user-centric royalties help independent creators more than they help major label artists. And since the major labels and Spotify are still pretty close-knit, even though I don't think they formally own Spotify anymore, but there's still a close relationship there, I think a lot of those major labels are the ones that are probably telling Spotify, don't change your royalty model. We like we like the way things are right now. And we especially like a model where if an artist doesn't hit a minimum threshold, like most indie artists won't, they're not going to get paid. So that means more money to the big artists. Like I, This seems like exactly. something where indie, indie creators can get screwed, depending on where Spotify places that floor, like where, wherever that minimum is. I think I think they were saying the minim minimum was around 200 plays a year, which seems shockingly low. But I mean, if if I were an indie creator and I wasn't really averaging that many streams, I don't know how much I'm getting paid out. Even I'm probably not much from Spotify, but. I mean, I would be somewhat up in arms about this if the money is going more towards the major labels and, and less away from the pockets of the creators themselves. And that's definitely an issue. This does seem like proposals that could really screw over indie creators. If only there was a piece of legislation <laughs> that's currently being passed through the halls of Congress right now that would give independent working musicians the ability to collectively bargain against platforms like Spotify to make sure that they're paid fairly and transparently. Gosh, I just I just wish there was a, a member of Congress right now championing this cause uh, and and creating legislation that would address this exact problem. And and if only she was willing to come on podcasts like this one and tell us all about it later in this show. Boy, that would just be something, huh? 
I wonder um, where we'll find that. Well, let's let's hope that that does happen this week. <laughs> let's maybe she will just magically appear and show up later in the show while Ryan uh, tells a joke about the Speaker of the House that became out of date uh, seventy two hours after he made it. But before we do that, uh, one other story I wanted to talk uh, with you about. Um, and this this one this one's got Katie Zaccardi written all over it, but I'd love to get your perspective as well, Graham. Saw a recent article in Dotted Music about how to build a fan base organically, right? And that just to me, I was like, oh, that's that's a that's Katie Zaccardi's wheelhouse. Like she, <laughs> as a as a music industry coach, counseling artists, this is probably something that you get a lot from artists. Like, I want to grow my fan base not just relying on algorithms and everything, but I want to do it the old-fashioned way. Uh, Evan Kid Bogart last week on the show was talking about how he got to where he is by making relationships one fan at a time, building that fan base organically. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we want to, you know, in that regard, Dotted Music had a great article about some of the things that you can do to build that organic fan base. And I want to read from a couple of these tips here, see what you think, Katie. Uh, One of the tips was tell your story and show your human side from the article quote, people resonate with stories and genuine emotions. Instead of bombarding listeners with requests to stream your music, let them into your world, share your journey, the ups and downs and the inspirations behind your art. Relatable content allows listeners to feel a personal connection with you, making them more inclined to support and engage with your music. This might mean sharing hobbies or interests outside of music. Such posts could be about books you're reading, your pets, food you're cooking, places you're traveling to, memes that you relate to, funny polls or questions you ask. Try different things and see what works best. I think a lot of musicians, Katie, uh, are afraid to kind of show that side of themselves, right? They still kind of have this old music industry model of, I need to be this inaccessible figure that's just a musical persona and i can't let people see me without my makeup on i can't let people know that i have nerdy hobbies um i just need to show this unattainable mythical figure of me and i I imagine you tell artists in your coaching practice all the time katie don't do that let people see the authentic you show them your human side give them a story yeah and it's funny too because i feel like a lot of musicians feel like well, it should be just about the music. I can't tell you the amount of content I've made, the amount of conversations I've had with people about that belief of like, it shouldn't have to even be about me. Like it should just be about the music, especially when it comes to independent musicians who don't necessarily care to be famous, but they just want like, but at the same time, they want their art to be like heard by the masses. And I'm like, all right, buddy, like (laughs) you gotta, you've gotta come to some terms with this. But it is about the music, but it is also very much about you. Like, I say this a lot, but in marketing, we are very much in a age of personal brand where like even big businesses will have a marketing voice or a couple people who are the face and the personality of the business. And the same goes for musicians. People don't just want to know the product, which is the music. And I think a lot of people think, that the way to promote your album is to just shout at people, go listen to my album, it's out. But there is no reason for anybody to take that action if they don't know who you are and what you're selling to them. So, because it's it's a business and it's a sale, right? Like you are 
you have to think of that as a product and a sale that you are trying to make, even though you're not, you know, taking $10 from them in person, they're like going stream on Spotify, which you might never see that money, LOL. But like, it still is a sale. <laughs> Good call back. <laughs> um, so it is really important, I think, to just feel like the music speaks for itself because the music needs a spokesperson. When you are an indie artist, you need someone to advocate for that music. You need someone to be able to give insight as to like, what it's going to sound like and what it's about. And am I going to relate to it? Because if I see something, it says, go listen to this. I don't know why I would spend my precious time that it could be scrolling on TikTok and having a grand old time or rewatching practical magic to go listen to your music <laughs> like that. I don't even, I'm going to like it. I don't even know what you're writing about. I don't even know who you are. So when we let people in on that and when we build a connection with people, it does two things. Number one, People want to support you if they feel connected to you. Number two, if people feel like they relate to you, then they're going to be much more likely to stream your music and listen to your art and watch your content because they know that you get it and you have things in common. Or maybe you're kind of aspirational for like the life that they want to have or the you know music that they want to listen to. And so when you have that personal connection, it's just kind of a win-win all around from a actual marketing and sales perspective, but also just from like building a connection with fans so that they feel like, Oh, I feel seen. I feel heard. I really like this person. I just like want to support everything that they do, even if I don't know what it is, but you can't get to that point before building connections. And I think that's what a lot of musicians expect is that I'll just start to share it. And then people will just listen to it or buy it or come to my show because it's me. And because, or because the music should be good enough that it'll compel them, but that's not the case. You build that relationship first. And Graham, this isn't just about musicians, right? I mean, every, I mean, all sorts of creative professionals, particularly TikTokers. Um, mm -hmm. This is the strategy, right? It's it's not content first. It's or certainly not content only. It is uh, here is my content, but also here is me as the package, the person delivering you the content. Let's build a relationship together. Let's get to know each other, get to know me as a creator, because that is going to enrich the art I'm giving you, whether it's music or whether it's YouTube videos or whatever other kind of art these creatives are making. Yeah, I think I, I saw something recently where it was like most growth in social profiles, especially Instagram, are happening through DMs and through stories rather than actually posting. Um, so it's really like you want to get into your community and, and build a community based off the people you meet. And who knows, maybe you'll meet somebody in, in your community and, and they'll help you out and they'll put you on to somebody else. And then that's, that's kind of how you build your, your fan base, I would say, in yeah. as organic of a way as possible. I encourage our viewers and listeners to check out this article in Dotted Music. It is called... You go to dottedmusic.com. The article is called Building an Organic Fan Base, Six Essential Strategies for Indie Artists. Lots of other great advice in there, like keeping your content consistent, finding a rhythm to your posts so that your fan base continue to stay engaged without overwhelming them, uh, or, you know, uh, cultivating a steady online presence. Give people behind-the-scenes glimpses. Don't just show them the art. Show them how the art comes together so that people feel a closer relationship to them. Give them stories behind the arts, uh, snippets from your day-to-day -day life. This is the kind of thing that drives 
organic engagement. And uh, it's uh, it's exciting to see. And, I, and it's one of the things that I love about the rise of platforms like YouTube or TikTok is that they make it easier than ever for creators to deliver this kind of behind-the-scenes uh, window for uh, artists. It used to be really hard for you to find out about uh, what your favorite artist day-to-day life was like. You had to read a magazine interview mm-hmm. or, you know, watch a behind the scenes of like VHS tape of your favorite music video or something. And now it's TikTok and you get to see that window into that artist seamlessly. And it's a, it's an exciting situation. Speaking of exciting situations, viewers and listeners, we're going to take a quick break and be joined by Congresswoman uh, Deborah Ross. She's going to talk to us all about the Protect Working Musicians Act. Don't go anywhere. This is going to be super, super important. So stay with us. Keep checking out Break the Business. We're going to be back in two minutes. Ryan Carella here. I hope you're enjoying the show and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Carella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTV Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Break the Business. Ryan Corelli here with Elisa Rockdoc. Very, very exciting. Thank you all for checking us out on all the major streaming platforms, all the podcasting platforms, and on Sirius XM 145. Look, there's a lot of places to find us. <laughs> Wherever you have found us, we are just so glad that you have. Good to see you again, Elisa. It's been entirely too long. Absolutely. I'm really, really glad I could do this with you again. Yeah, this is going to be a blast. I'm excited for this one. Joining us on the program this week is the U.S. Representative for North Carolina's 2nd Congressional District. She is the sponsor of the Protect Working Musicians Act of 2023, which is legislation that would give independent musicians the ability to collectively negotiate with music streaming platforms and generative AI platforms for fair compensation. You can find out more about our guest work by visiting ross.house.gov. We are happy to welcome Congresswoman Deborah Ross on to Break the Business. Hello, Congresswoman. Hello. Great to be with you. We are thrilled to have you, although we have to say 
Um, I feel like you got a lot of other things that uh, are going on right now, and it's a very busy time. I'm thrilled that you made time for us. Um, you know, with uh, with that, y- y'all don't have a speaker right now. It's very very busy. Well, they they decided to go home about an hour and a half ago, so I might have had to cancel on you if we had more votes, but. Things were not going in the right direction for uh, for the Republicans. Um, so the Democrats have said we're happy to work with you, um, but in the meantime, I'm on your show. Well, we we want to break this logjam. If I could make a humble suggestion here, I've read my Constitution, and I know it says that you don't actually have to be a sitting member of Congress to be Speaker oh. of the House. So I'm thinking. Oh, so you're pointing at me. I was going to say that we should have Elisa be Speaker of the House. Oh, I mean, absolutely not. I mean, are you kidding? <laughs> People want to see that fire engine red hair and those tattoos on C-SPAN. And she's so good at gaveling, Congresswoman. I, you, you have know, no idea. There is that gavel. Yeah, it's very tempting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so the, we'll take it under advisement. There you go. That doesn't sound good, Elisa. Nope. <laughs> I know what that means. All right. Um, let's talk about the Protect Working Musicians Act. This is a piece of legislation that we've been excited about at Break the Business even before you uh, took the oath and became a member of Congress. We had Congressman Ted Deutsch on the show last year to talk about this piece of legislation. We've always kind of been following it and wanting to see if it moves forward. And I'm curious, what got you interested in this area of public policy? What made you want to take up the mantle for working musicians? Well, I have worked for artists' rights for decades um, as an attorney, and um, I even studied artists' rights as a law student and really want to make sure that people who put their heart and soul and creativity into making our world better and entertaining us uh, get compensated for their talents. And so this is something that I've had a long interest in. I serve on the intellectual property subcommittee of judiciary because I care about copyrights and patents and making sure that um, people who invent and create um, get rewarded for what they do. And then when Representative Deutsch decided to retire, Um, I was recruited by a lot of the working musicians in my district. I represent um, Raleigh and Wake County, North Carolina. We have a lot of musicians there and they wanted me to work on it. And then of course, I care about this new piece, this AI piece that has now emerged and that Congress has been doing a lot of work on. Well, help me understand a piece of this legislation that I think a lot of musicians are probably having trouble with as well. So, you know, Elisa is a working musician. She's got her music on Spotify and all the streaming platforms. Um, if this this bill says that musicians would be allowed to get together with other musicians and collectively tell Spotify, if you want all of our music, you need to pay us better rates. Why can't musicians do that today? What stops musicians from grouping together and negotiating against Spotify? So the thing that stops musicians from doing that are the are antitrust laws. So we have these laws that say that um, certain kinds of businesses can't come together and control pricing. Now, it doesn't usually um, affect musicians or creative people. It's usually basically so 
let's just say airlines can yeah, all decide banks, how airlines costs. oil companies right video right. game companies yeah. yeah you know how much it's going to cost for a ticket to new york right because you want to be able to have that competition to get the lowest price for the consumer but when it comes to musicians it's actually more kind of like a class action lawsuit where just say something you had there was a bad medical device or something like that a single person wouldn't have very much negotiating power in order to get their compensation. And so what this allows is multiple people to come together and negotiate together. So while it's really a way around antitrust law, I see it a lot like a class action lawsuit where people who might not be able to afford to assert their rights, can band together and assert their rights together. Different versions of this legislation have been circulating in prior Congresses. And for the most part, this bill hasn't made a lot of progress. But I feel like the winds are different now, right? With the SAG after strikes, I think people are more mindful than ever of the difficult times that creative professionals are going through and you know how hard it can be for people in Elisa's line of work mm -hmm. to maintain a good standard of living. Do you see those labor movements as possibly being a catalyst for having this version of this law uh, move forward through the halls of Congress? I see. Um, I do see the interest in artists' rights and labor rights um, being a reason why the public at large would be more mm -hmm. interested in this. I also think that the pandemic made this a bigger issue because a lot of artists didn't see any reason to really fight it if they could go on tour, right? Mm. If they could get money from concerts. But during the pandemic, people became a lot more reliant on what they could sell to streaming services, what would get picked up. And they didn't have the income that they got from doing live shows. That's what I heard from artists. And then I think the third thing that people are aware of is this new piece that has to do with AI and how AI has been using people's copyrighted work in ways that then make that, that AI, whoever owns the AI, money. And you're really not supposed to do that with a copyright unless you get permission and a license and pay that person. And so that issue has come up quite a lot on the intellectual property subcommittee. And so I think that those three things have come together to make artists more aware of their rights and to make the public and legislators more aware of their rights. And that that piece about AI that you were talking about, I think, makes your metaphor about this legislation kind of being like class action lawsuits mm -hmm. more apt because these AI platforms could be stealing artists work and so this legislation could be a mechanism to allow artists to fight for their rights and and get better treatment from these tech platforms uh, elisa i hate to monopolize the congresswoman's <laughs> time here if you do you have any questions for uh, representative ross yeah um i guess sort of generally um um one of the things that that sort of struck me was i'm fighting this on a front as a voice actor um, and as a working actor on the kind of SAG-AFTRA front, but it it was interesting how I didn't even think of it until I saw this on your website that with music AI platforms, not all AI companies are yet convinced they even need licenses. 
to make use of existing music. And I, and I have to imagine that as somebody with your history of intellectual property law, that has to be absolutely maddening, even just on a personal yeah, level. It's very, very frustrating because let's get back to just the basics of the constitution. Remember, intellectual property, copyright, patent, it's in the constitution to reward science and the useful arts. It's a foundation of this country that we lift up, celebrate, and compensate innovators and artists. And so when people think that they can just take people's creativity um, for free and then make their own money off of it, that not only is unfair, but it violates a basic tenet of our constitution. And um, that is something that I think the public really doesn't know about. They say, oh, well, it's just one little thing. Well, no, it's the property right of the creator. And I feel firmly that if we don't incentivize creativity, then we're going to have creativity from other countries take over what American innovators do. And uh, American innovators won't, they, they might do it just because they have this talent, but they won't keep pushing their craft. And there's a reason why the United States is one of the best places to innovate in the world. And that's because we protect intellectual property. I see a bigger war, I should say, probably not the, you know, for lack of a better word, happening here, where when we see what what's happening with working musicians and Spotify or working musicians and AI platforms. What we're seeing is a conflict between independent creators who each don't have a lot of leverage and power going up against large tech platforms who have all the power, all the money, and have become the principal means for creative professionals to get their art out into the world. That puts them in a, in a weaker position. And so I'm wondering, kind of looking ahead here, right? You know, your legislation addresses two aspects of this issue uh, with uh, music streaming platforms and with AI platforms. But I can think of lots of situations where creative professionals are in a weak position against tech platforms and could benefit from the ability to collectively bargain. So once this legislation hopefully reaches a successful outcome, has there been any discussion about a similar kind of Protect Working Musicians Act, but for TikTokers who are uh, mm. putting their music on TikTok mm -hmm. or live streamers putting their material on Twitch. There's a lot mm -hmm. of uh, stuff in the news about these creators not getting compensated very well or having to deal with difficult working conditions to make enough money to live. Um, could we see a similar kind of legislative landscape for these professionals as well? Well, I've heard from um, songwriters and some other groups about this haven't really looked into the TikTokers. Now, of course, the question is, again, do you, have you got some kind of right to your creativity? And so let's see what might, what else might be out there. Um, so we've talked to some other groups about this. I think we're going to start with a coalition that gets along together because, you know, it didn't get through with uh, Congressman Deutsch. I don't want to start adding everything on and then kind of weigh it down. I want to try to get it through with a coalition that it works for, show that it works, 
And then we can look at expanding it. Um, but you raised some really, really good issues and um, something that I'll take back to my staff and we'll start thinking about. Oh, no kidding. If if they are amenable to it, I would love to send some resources and information mm-hmm. to your staff to you know consider those aspects of it, because I think that's that could be the next version mm-hmm. of this or if you want to take it to the next level. But I completely understand your desire to want to focus on the here and now and get something uh, through the uh, very difficult legislative process. We all know the sco- uh, schoolhouse rock song. It's, uh, <laughs> it's quite a process to, to get the president to sign something. Um, so what can this community do the viewers and listeners of this program creative professionals like elisa uh, entertainment business professionals like myself what can we do to help support this legislation well i think you can tell your members of congress to sign on so there's a house bill there's my house bill then there's also um, going to be a senate bill senator ben ray lujan from new mexico is going to um, do a bill so they can talk to their senators about it. Given that the House isn't doing a lot of business right now, um, it may be that the bill goes through the Senate first. And one thing I've learned as a a legislator is it doesn't matter how it gets through Mm -hmm. just so long as it gets through. And so I would encourage your listeners to contact their members of Congress, um, both on the House and Senate side, ask their members of Congress to sign on. Um, The bills will be in the Judiciary Committees of the House and Senate. And so to the extent that your members of Congress are on those committees to advocate for the the bill to move forward. And um, that's what our country's about, petitioning the government for redress. Well, I can tell you, you you have lots of allies of this legislation right here. We are in your camp for sure. And this is a good constituency to fight for if you're trying to promote something, because you're talking about working musicians. They know how to promote themselves and the things that they care about. So I can just imagine a lot of free time we're going to see. And you got lots of free time, of course. Um, But thank you very much for your perspective on this. We are we're excited to see how this develops, um, how this new landscape that we're in could perhaps make legislation like this more likely to get passed. Um, and and we, we hope that this is just the beginning of what could be a very important conversation for indie creators. Elisa, do you want to give the Congresswoman our final question? Sure. So we asked this of all of our guests. Um, so one more thing before you go. Do you have any advice for any independent creators or maybe any future members of Congress um, in order to move their careers forward? Oh, well, um, I always give the advice from the former NC State basketball coach, Jim Valvano, Mm. who um, ended up taking his team to a national championship. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Have faith in yourself and play it all the way out. What a mic drop. Uh, Jim Valvano quotes are always uh, welcome here. We love Jimmy V. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us this week. We really appreciate your perspective. And um, I know this is always a bold thing to ask given your busy schedule, but please don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again real soon and keep this conversation going. That'd be great. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Our thanks to Congresswoman Deborah Ross, to Elisa Rockdock, to producer Lauren, and all of our viewers and listeners for checking out Break the Business. We will see you next week.